This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. It feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome. It is Tuesday, January the 24th. You are listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson in London. Alex Steele, of course, over in New York. Um, today, the earnings season, it feels, get, gets real. We've got a whole load of companies around the world delivering data. And to be honest, this is what the market has been waiting for. We're going from a kind of macro-driven market, a top-down market, uh, to a bottom-up market. You need to look at individual companies. Today, we've had names out like Associated British Foods. We've had General Electric out with numbers. We've had 3M uh, of, of post-it note fame and scotch tape fame out with numbers as well. All of them telling a really interesting story. Equity markets, to be honest, Alex, as a result, are kind of just going sideways. We're just kind of waiting to see, I think, what we are going to learn. We've come a long way relatively quickly. Mm-hmm. Now I think we're about to find out whether that rally is real. Yeah, we also got PMIs. We'll talk about that in just a second. Uh, U.S. PMIs as well, like better, slowing less. But the prices part is the really sticky part, which leads us to that earnings story about margins getting squeezed. You can manage your market margins as long as your top line doesn't fall off a cliff. And that's when, in terms of 3M, their retail and consumer demand, which is really bad. And so that's sort of bad news bears uh, for those kind of companies. And that stock is the worst performing stock within the S&P. You like a post-it note, I understand. I love me. I'm like long post-its in my house. I don't know. My daughter draws on them. She leaves it everywhere. Like I used to have, I don't have them anymore, but I used to have literally 30 post-its surrounding my Bloomberg terminal at my desk with all the different functions and stuff. Long post-its. Yeah, you don't need to do that anymore. Very clever technology means that, that you don't you don't need those post-it notes. Anyway, we digress. We'll come back. We'll talk more about what is happening with these numbers uh, in just a moment. We also, as Alex says, need to talk about what is happening uh, with the data we've had out today. Uh, we've had market PMI data out. The purchasing managers index is usually a really good guide as to where economies are going. So we need to delve into what those data are telling us. We'll do that in a moment. Before that, though, here's Charlie Pellet. I thank you very much indeed, Guy Johnson. Here's what's going on. British companies signaled output dropped at the fastest pace since the start of the pandemic as the government budget deficit widened to a record, adding to evidence that the economy may be in a shallow recession. S&P Global said its index of sentiment from purchasing managers fell more sharply than expected in January, led by a deterioration in services that had previously propped up the economy. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz is expected to give Poland approval as soon as today to export its German-made leopard tanks to Ukraine. This according to sources. Those sources say Berlin wants to make a decision on the issue quickly to quell growing frustration among allies. Poland formally requested the authorization earlier yesterday. The German government said it will respond with the necessary urgency. German law does require approval for the re-export of its military equipment. Eurostar has been forced to run trains with a large number of empty seats between London and its destinations in Europe in order to prevent backups at border checkpoints at its stations. The cross-channel train operator, which is controlled by France's state-owned SNCF rail system, said that Brexit and a shortage of border officials was increasing the time it takes to process passengers departing from St. Pancras. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. 
Excellent. That's really good news. Thank you, Charlie. Really oh, looking forward to those cues. Uh, Charlie Pellet will be back in around 30 minutes' time to update us on what we need to know. Uh, let's get back to the data that Alex mentioned at the top of the show. Um, we have had PMI data out from the United States, from the Eurozone, the flash data out from the Eurozone, and from the UK. Um, to be honest, all of it, I think, is broadly positive to varying degrees. The data out of the Eurozone, very positive. Uh, the composite number there, which takes in services and manufacturing, uh, back north of 50, which is the uh, expansion contraction line, 50.2. The market was looking for 49.8. Uh, the UK data, a little softer, but there are there are elements in there that you could call sil- that maybe some sort of silver linings within the data, uh, some of the outlook views uh, coming from from the managers, uh, indicating maybe a more positive picture later on this year. The US data also actually w- was broadly positive. It's all about the direction of travel. Now, we caught up uh, with the man that pull all, uh, put, puts all this data together, uh, S&P's chief business economist, Chris Williamson, a little bit earlier on. Uh, we started off by talking about the Eurozone and whether or not actually the Eurozone data has bottomed and whether or not we're at kind of early economic cycle. Well, I think you've captured it nicely. We seem to be celebrating the fact that we're we're, we're stalled, which <laughs> reflects how grim things were looking a couple of months ago. Uh, more than anything to cheer, I think the fact that you know there's a soft landing, if if no recession at all, is is a really good picture compared to what we've seen back in October, both especially in the eurozone. It's more mixed in the UK, where current numbers are coming down further, and definitely risks of a, a, a Q1 GDP downturn in the UK, less so in the eurozone. But even in the UK, you've got the forward-looking indicators coming up now, notably business confidence. It's the, it's the biggest jump upward in confidence about the year ahead that we had since the reopening of the economy in 2020. So even in the UK, where there's more pressures than anywhere else, arguably now, you're seeing this turnaround. Mm-hmm. So there, there could be a shift. But I do just want to stress that, you know, we've there's so many headwinds that persist that I don't really see how we're going to really generate any significant noteworthy growth in Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you've got policy tightenings coming through from the ECB still, from the Bank of England still, you've got governments looking to withdraw their subsidies uh, from the energy crisis. Uh, I know pr- how, uh, the gas prices have come down, but when you start withdrawing those subsidies as well, what does this leave demand looking like? It's surely going to be coming under pressure. Quick question then on prices, Chris, for uh, UK and for Europe. If the US is looking at a stickier kind of situation and a, and a pass-through, um, are, are, is that the same story for Europe and the UK in terms of pricing? Interestingly, yeah, in in Europe as well, certainly on that service sector side, things are looking a little bit stickier than we'd like to be seeing at this stage of the of, of the sort of general slowdown in demand that we've had. Um, we 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 would expect service sector price inflation to be coming down as those industrial prices feed through lower into things like food and transportation and so forth. But they're looking a little bit stickier. And the reports we're getting is this is predominantly wage influence. Now, in the service sector, our input cost gauges include staff costs. And obviously, those feed through to the the selling price inflation as well. And that's where the stickiness seems to be. China reopening seems to be being taken as a very good thing for Europe. Um, What are you seeing in supply chains? Does the supply chain story that is improving continue to improve with that China reopening? Broadly speaking, yeah, the supply chain situation has alleviated significantly across the US and in Europe. Uh, There's virtually, you know, no net lengthening of supply deliveries uh, in in the major developed economies now, which is a massive change compared to what we're seeing this time last year. So that whole supply situation is eased at the same time 
we've got the demand situation pretty much collapsing. Companies are running down their inventory levels. They they accumulated too much. So these twin factors are really helping ease the supply situation. We had a little wobble. Uh, in in some some countries, uh, which is perhaps linked to the additional restrictions in China that were in place before, but that seems to be alleviating now. So this reopening is, I think, on balance, uh, uh, a, a disinflationary impact for manufacturing globally. Chris Williamson joining us on his data a little bit earlier on. Uh, joining us now to analyse the numbers, Philip Aldrich uh, from our eco team to give us assessments of what we should be uh, doing with these numbers. Philip, Chris, Chris seems to be painting a fairly positive picture of the data. Um, the data are broadly across Europe and to a certain extent the United States improving, but they are still in, in isolation, still fairly kind of subdued numbers. How should we be looking at what we're getting here, particularly from a, from the UK's point of view? There are silver linings here, but you kind of really got to want to see them. Yeah, it's a it's a momentum story, isn't it? That people are picking up that Chris Williamson is, is picking up on that there's been this sort of downward swing all year, and, and then you're kind of seeing it's the things flattening out, bottoming out, and and possibly turning the corner, and that and that just. It provides that kind of sentiment, slight slight improvement in sentiment that you can see potentially coming through. So people are still feeling pretty, companies are still feeling pretty negative right now, but then they're, the investment intentions are beginning to slightly pick up. And um, and there was a CBI survey out today as well, which also showed a very similar thing. Investment intentions uh, for the year ahead being mixed, but um, uh, you know the the rate of decline has has sort of leveled off. Um, and so it's that, it's kind of sense, the sense that we've kind of hit bottom and we're going to pick up. Um, mm-hmm. I think the stock market's kind of thinking the same thing this year, isn't it? It's like things things are bottom now and you know, we, we, we might be turning but, but 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 pair that with what we heard about the prices, because I feel like what made me worried was the stickiness of certain prices and the pass-through to the consumer. And once that happens, it's hard to reverse. Yeah, so, so the so the big so obviously inflation is and this came through. I was in Davos last week, and this came through there as well. That it's the it's 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 wage pressures and price and the pricing power of companies means that at the moment that people genuinely think that the inflation is going to stick around for um, for a lot longer, or is going to prove stickier than people than central bankers are hoping. I looked at the numbers today and then I looked at the kind of the read throughs that I was seeing on 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 the Bloomberg and elsewhere. And, and the sense seems to be from the PMI data that this is this, despite the fact that maybe kind of in a year's time things will look better. This is a fairly solid indicator that the UK recession is kind of on us and will be with us for some time. Yet I, I looked at market pricing for the Bank of England today. Didn't change very much. Mm. Why would the Bank of England look at this data and uh, and not want to maybe take a more cautious view? Uh, there's well, there's signs that so basically, so you, I mean, the CBI also draw attention to um, labour tightness. Um, so there are still concerns about uh, uh, skills shortages. So the number of <clears throat> number of vacancies, advertised vacancies appears to be falling, but people are still struggling to get older stuff. And if you look at the most recent wage data, 7.2% growth in, uh, in in pay for the year to I think it was November. The, um, 
you know, those are the kind of pressures that are coming through. And next week, we're going to see from we're going to hear from the bank next Thursday. And one of the things that they're going to produce is their pay survey. They do a survey every year of pay settlements. And the February inflation report, or monetary policy report, has that. And so we'll find out. Expert, expert HR recently published similar kind of survey on pay settlements, which was sort of five or six percent. Those are numbers which the bank is going to say, you know, that is dangerous. We need to we need to raise rates. Uh, relatively aggressively into that kind of wage pricing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that's where you're, you know, where you're going to see the sort of um, the central bank you know, acting more, more, the reasons for them acting more aggressively. Do you think they're going to have as much runway as the ECB, for example, or were the data give earlier? Uh, yeah, I mean, it looks like the UK, UK is basically facing a tougher climate in terms of the recession, but I mean, for the central banks, the, the key the key issue is the out, output gap. And we have the bank. The last time the bank did, took a sort of stock take of the economy back in November, they decided that we had excess, despite weak growth, we still had excess supply to um, excess demand. So uh, we need to bring the we need to you know, dampen demand to bring the economy into balance. Um, and so, despite the weak growth, we are at sort of at inflationary levels of of growth, which talks to the weakness of productivity and these sort of underlying issues. So that I mean, so, that, so a recession effectively is something which they've almost got to target. They've got to basically push push down if their if their estimates of supply. Um, the and, and is four and a half going to get us right. to that point? Is is four and a half percent going to cause a recession in the UK? Uh, well, I think the Bank of England is already for, was already forecasting a recession with rates at three and a half percent. So, uh, is four and a half going to get us there? Yeah, I mean, you'd have thought that. Uh, but is that that's a, that, and that's and that's a hard landing for the UK economy. Four and a half is basically it, a hard well, landing. It, well, it's, I mean, it's how how hard is the recession? I mean, you, you could have you can have a shallow recession of a couple of quarters and then uh, and come back and it. So I mean that isn't that is that is a hard landing. I mean the, the bigger story here is really just the weakness of the economy. Um, whether we whether we slip into a couple of quarters of recession or whether it's um, whether it flattens out or whether actually it, it, it lasts a bit longer, but is again like, like just very shallow. Um, it's really the, it's just that the, the potential growth in the economy at the moment is looking com- completely destitute. Um, and and that's and that's the that's kind of the terms of trade shock that we've been facing and, and the inflationary impacts um, uh, and and the lack of business investment and the lack of productivity. So those those remain the big the big problems. Well, on that note, that uplifting note, guys. Uh, Philip, thanks a lot. <laughs> really appreciated uh, Philip Aldrich uh, joining us there. And um, what do we have at the budget deficit? Didn't that like blow out? I'm trying to find my. my well, they're here. funding all. They're they're basically right. funding everybody's gas bills and electricity bills. A and and it's more expensive to service debt. It's not a great combination. No, it's really it's really not good at all. Uh, the budget deficit now at 27.4 billion pounds, a record. Uh, for the month, almost triple what it was before. All right, coming up, we're going to talk about strikes coming up next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. 
Uh, we are getting very used to strikes in this country, but most of them are centred uh, in the public arena, i.e. civil servants going on strike uh, and, and kind of basic quasi-civil servants going on strike. That kind of is beginning to change a little bit now. Amazon workers at a huge facility uh, near Coventry are going to be staging a historic strike uh, tomorrow. Um, this will be the the first time we've basically seen Amazon having such a strike at its UK operations. It's the first time it's ever really been uh, kind of hit by industrial action. Um, this is kind of basically centering around pay, but it feels like that it probably goes further than that. So are we about to see The public sector strikes turning private. Well, let's ask our strikes reporter, Eamon Farhat, to join us uh, and get a sense of what is happening here. Eamon, first of all, just give me an idea of the reason for this Amazon strike and the impact that it could have. Yeah, so this strike tomorrow will take place, as you said, in Coventry. The reason, as you said, it really is pay. You know, they've offered them this 50p 50p an hour pay rise, which brings them to 10 50 an hour. They're looking for more like 15, you know, like everything, like in the the private, the public sector, sorry. People, you know, are really worried about pay. What's really interesting here, as you said, it is the first of its kind. You know, there have been some unofficial walkouts before, but Amazon grew a lot over the pandemic. They added a lot of staff, and I guess this staff, these staff now are getting quite angry about this pay deal they just received. Now, Amazon's also shutting down three of its UK warehouses, right? That's going to hurt like 1,200 people, but they're going to open up more that apparently should create 2,500 jobs. Is, is, is that dynamic also in the mix? Yeah, no, it's tricky. You know, obviously, Amazon, this this kind of e-commerce giant, has had some difficulties in the past, you know, kind of the past year. It's cut about one percent of its total employees, and this movement in the UK closing these this centre and then saying they're going to open others, it definitely doesn't bode extremely well. And it definitely, you know, they could have offered them a higher pay deal. This this seemed to be below what they expected, which is why they started to take this action. So I think it definitely is um, definitely does play into that whole dynamic. Is it expected to be a one-off? And these kind of things, you know, usually will go on until some kind of agreement happens. Um, unfortunately, Amazon doesn't seem to be engaging in any talks at all, according to the union. So this probably will not be a one-off, is what I would say, because they'll keep going until they get at least a conversation, uh, you know, at least some kind of other offer, even if it's just something um, you know, symbolic, at least a conversation. So if that's the case, and then the strikes either continue or they're like a rolling basis, like the public sector, etc., mm. what's like the impact there? So does Guy just like go to the drugstore nearby instead of ordering something on Amazon? Like, is it that big of an economic impact? I mean, the company has said that this this strike itself will not have a huge impact, and it is true that it's quite a small number of workers. It's one it's one warehouse, you know, so it, it's not going to be huge. But you know, the chance of this spreading further, you know, there has been last year some unofficial walkouts that um, caused a slowdown in warehouses across the UK, which were actually bigger than this strike action today. Um, those weren't, you know, official strike action, so you know that's why we're saying this is the first official strike action. But this type of thing can spread and could could cause some yeah. disruption, and of course, that's adding to the other strikes that we see across the country. Uh, you drive at the M1. There is Amazon Warehouse followed by Amazon Warehouse followed by mm-hmm. GXO Warehouse followed by Amazon Warehouse followed by another where it just goes on and on and on. If Amazon's got a problem, I'm assuming that everybody in this industry has got a problem and are likely to see. Therefore, we could see strikes in 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 other companies, um, and they could find similar problems to the one that Amazon is experiencing. You know, that's definitely true. You know, overall, the private sector has had some industrial disputes, not as much as the public sector, but the private sector has been much quicker at settling them in the past. You know, we saw right. kind of baggage handlers, we saw you know, many different people settling, whilst Amazon here seems to kind of be holding out. And they are a huge employer. That's the thing. It's a large number of employees. So it really is an important you know message to send to but the rest of the industry. The, the, average, the average private sector waste settlement at the moment is 7%. 
I, mm-hmm. Is that something that Amazon will be prepared to step up and deliver? As a percentage, what does 50p look like? 50p is about, I think, 3%, I want to say. Right. I think that's that's not even like remotely earlier. keeping pace with inflation. Yeah, that's that's the reason they would be they would be annoyed at it, and they are asking fifteen pounds an hour, which is something like forty three percent, which is which is pretty huge. But I think you know definitely three percent is probably way too low, which is why these mm-hmm. these these workers are getting angry. Inflation in the UK now is really something that everyone is aware of. Everyone knows that number, you know, about ten mm-hmm. percent. So everyone really wants to get at least that kind of pay rise. It, it does feel like there's a happy medium somewhere between three percent and forty three percent. I'm just saying that feels like a <laughs> wide band. Um, to that point. The government's been really reluctant to engage in public sector. Would the government at all put any pressure on Amazon to engage with its workers? I think, you know, that's an interesting question. The government definitely, you know, this could really affect the economy if this kind of thing drags out. So they would definitely, you know, try to encourage talks and all that. I mean, for the rail workers, for example, you know, they're trying to be the facilitator of these talks because at the end of the day, although the government doesn't, you know, employ Amazon workers, if Amazon workers are all on strike, it will also really affect the government. In terms of where we stand with the government strikes at the moment, mm-hmm. I, I could be wrong about this, but I'm sensing an increasing desire from government maybe to settle or at least hmm. start this. Pro- have Has the tone changed over the last few days? I mean, I think it depends what you're talking about. On the health side of things, actually, I've things are say, probably getting yeah. worse. <laughs> Yeah, health side, you know, things are probably getting worse. You know, we're seeing actually no talks going on right now on the health side. Two weeks with no talks, huge strike action on February 6th, the biggest NHS strike so far. On the rail side, more things seem to be moving. You know, things may be settling soon, um, but it's definitely not the end of it. You know, health, I think, is going to be the one that keeps picking up steam whilst, you know, the train maybe starts to starts to settle. So basically, guy can't miss any more cable show. Is that what I'm getting? Yeah, exactly. I, I have to miss the cable show when there is a train strike because they end so early that I have to basically bail on Alex after the first block. Yeah, so that won't happen. That's a good thing. Um, what do you Maybe. think would uh, at this point? What what is a settle wind up looking like? Um, for Amazon, you mean? No, for the train workers and oh, then for, for also yeah, the um, healthcare workers and ambulance. Well, right now, for example, the RMT have a deal where it's about 9% is what they're being mm-hmm. offered. You know, they're actually right now in meetings um, to try and see if they're going to put that to, to members uh, as a vote because that's how they would do it. And if, if they usually, usually they would recommend it to members and that basically means that the thing is settled. So we might actually get news of that tonight or tomorrow. Um, that could be coming quite soon. Uh, so 9% is what we're hearing there. Nurses have said 10%. You know, they'd meet the government halfway because they said 19 initially. So I think around that 9, 10% mark is where we're starting to, to hear movement. Yeah. Uh, 43 is probably a little bit much, little somewhere bit, around 9 or 10. I, uh, as, as Eamon says, I, everybody's talking about that kind of 10%, circa 10% number. Mm-hmm. Eamon, great stuff. Thank you very much indeed. We'll continue to keep an eye on what is happening. Um, I have to say that Lizzie Burden is going to be in Coventry. Uh, so if you want to get a sense of what is happening here, um, Lizzie, Eamon, the rest of the team are going to be putting out some fantastic coverage uh, on what is going to be happening up in Coventry. Uh, as this, I think this is, this is quite a significant moment in terms of kind of the strikes broadening out as well. We'll continue to monitor what is happening. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. So quick check in here uh, on U.S. markets. I got to be honest, going nowhere fast. We're going to talk about... Um, 
The PMIs for a moment, they slowed less, but prices still pretty sticky. Also, a ton of earnings coming out. Um, on the downside, you really have 3M, one of the worst performing stocks within the S&P. Um, they're forecasting profit trailed estimates, and it's going to cut about 2,500 manufacturing jobs. Um, on the flip side, you have GE. It's dealing with its renewable energy business that continues to struggle, um, but they are trying to spin that off in early 2024. Their aerospace division held up pretty okay. Um, Verizon, their profit outlook trailed Wall Street estimates, um, citing consumer uh, issues in its wireless business. Um, but the stock didn't perform terrible um, after that as well. And Microsoft reports after the bell. We will talk about that in just a moment. The stock is sitting right at its 50 and 100 day moving average. Like, what is priced in um, at this point? That's a quick snapshot here in the U.S. Let's get some other headlines with Charlie Pell. Hi, thank you very much, Alex Steele. Here's what's going on. The number of British businesses at risk of going bust rose by more than a third at the end of last year. This according to a report from consultancy Begbie's Trainer. Its red flag alert showed a 36% jump in the number of companies in critical financial distress in the final quarter of 2022 compared with the year earlier. The report said it was the sixth straight quarter in which critical distress was worsened. UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is facing another rebellion from members of his Conservative Party who want to toughen legislation so websites are forced to introduce more robust age checks to stop children from accessing pornography. A series of amendments being drafted for the long-debated online safety bill will propose that all porn websites must implement age verification systems within six months of it becoming law. Twitter is being sued by the Crown Estate for failing to pay rent at its London office and a landlord in the U.S. for similarly falling behind on rent for its San Francisco headquarters. The Crown Estate manages a range of assets from shops and offices to the seabed around England that's ultimately owned by the British monarch. It filed a suit against Twitter over its London premises in the West End, according to court filings. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. All right, Charlie, thank you so very much. Speaking about suing, let's see if I can make this uh, jump here. The U.S. Department of Justice and eight states have now officially sued Alphabet, uh, calling for the breakup of the search giant's ad technology business. And this is over alleged illegal monopolization of the digital advertising market market. Uh, quote, Google abuses its monopoly power to disadvantage website publishers and advertisers who dare to use competing ad tech products. Uh, that stock is off by about 1.2%. All right, staying with stocks, you got GE, the stock pretty much flat. Um, aerospace, okay. You got can, uh, the renewable energy business really weighing revenue there down 19%. David Weston caught up with Larry Culp, chairman at, at GE, for an exclusive conversation. And he said, you know, what is the biggest constraint for the company? Well, I think we exited 2022, David, with tremendous momentum. The fourth quarter print for uh, for the end of 22 had us, I think, at an exceptionally strong revenue level, up 11%, as you well know, led by our aerospace business. Earnings were up 51%, cash up 16%. So it's really that momentum that we bring into 2023, given what's happening with healthcare, given the balance sheet improvements. We're, we're now down over $100 billion of debt since 2018. I'm sure models are adjusting, but we come into this year feeling very good about where we are from an aerospace perspective. We expect the top line to be up mid-teens to high-teens with services and new units continuing to improve given the aerospace recovery. We also anticipate better performance in our Vernova business. We know we've got challenges in renewables, but we think we're going to have a better year in 23 
And that just sets us up overall, I think, not only for good results this year, but in turn, the second step of the transformation whereby we take GE Vernova public as we did healthcare earlier this month. Just where I wanted to go, where on the schedule for spinning off, if I can call it power, but it's Vernova is the name of it. Where are you on, on the timetable of that? Are you still looking at the beginning of 2024? David, GE Vernova will include both our power and renewables businesses. We said we would bring them forward in, in a second step and, and we're very much on that path. There's a lot of work that we need to do internally just to, to rewire and replumb the business just like we did with healthcare. We know the underlying operating performance has to be better. And I think what we've seen over the last year, both in terms of pricing as well as cost improvements, set us up to do that. And all the while, one thing we didn't expect, or I should say two things we didn't expect, back November of 21, we, when we announced this move, we were not anticipating the Inflation Reduction Act, and we didn't know that a tragedy would unfold as it has in Ukraine. Uh, so both, changed the, both changed the outlook for the market and in turn the leadership position we enjoy within it. Well, I wanted to pursue specifically the renewables, because as I looked through the documents that you released this today, that was the one that sort of jumped out, that that was not doing as well. Renewables, if anything, look like they're going the wrong direction right now. What's the cause of that? And what do you need to do between now and the beginning of 2024 to make sure this spinoff is going to work the way you want it to? Well, I think when we looked at the, uh, the results today, clearly aerospace led the way. Power showed its stability. We know the uh, renewables business has a ways to go. What we really need first and foremost, David, is the Inflation Reduction Act to kick in to give us more volume in the U.S. market. We're in the middle of a, uh, a lull in that regard. This is our best market, our biggest market geographically. And when we get that volume coupled with the underlying productivity and cost improvements that we've made, we think that renewables and in turn Vernova will be on its way. Well, I'm, I'm wondering what the pot of gold at the end of that rainbow when it comes to renewables. In, in this sense, I, I get nervous when a business is totally dependent upon the government. Is that renewables business right now to have, be a good business? Does it require things like the Inflation Reduction Act? How can it sustain itself and be profitable going forward? Well, David, I would step back, be it the Inflation Reduction Act, be it what's happening as we electrify and change or accelerate the energy transition given events in Ukraine. Over the next decade, there is no question that we will see the world decarbonize. We will undergo an energy transition. And the portfolio products and capabilities that GE will bring to bear to help our customers meet that challenge, be it gas turbine, wind turbine, what we do in small modular reactors in the nuclear space, what we can do from a grid perspective, particularly digitally, all of that will be part of the solution. And that, to me, is what will create that pot of gold that you referenced a moment ago. It's hard work, it's important work, and it will be worth doing. Larry Cup talking to David Weston a few minutes ago, the CEO of General Electric. Alex, we are going through an energy transition, like it or not. Uh, General Electric is going to be a big part of that. What we've been through with GE and the rest of the industry, to be honest, feels like teething trouble. They, they, haven't, they couldn't, they didn't figure out how to price some of this stuff properly. And they've all been having problems with that as a result. They've also had all kinds of other issues folded into that, like supply chain problems as well. But ultimately, we know that this is the direction of travel. We know that wind turbines are going to be a big and growing business going forward from here. I think the question is, what's the return going to be? So yep. to, to, to David's point of like, you're just dependent on all this money from the government, that's because a lot of these projects without government support in some capacity are uneconomic. You don't get the kind of returns. 
even with the government support, your returns get better. How how sustainable is that model? And if I'm a wind turbine company, or if I'm an oil company diversifying into alt yep. energy, am I okay with but, like but low I, digit returns? Well, so I think there's a number of things. I, I think some of this stuff is becoming cost comparable. Um, certainly, wind in the UK has become cost comparable. But um, for you, but I don't know about a company basis in terms of returns for no, projects. No, sure, sure. But I think you can make money from it. I think the issue is that. Actually, they're building some of this stuff. It's actually, like, in many ways, quite reliable. It doesn't actually require much maintenance. A lot of G's business historically has been in the maintenance side of the mm-hmm. equation. And that's maybe where the margins ultimately suffer. We're going to talk about J&J next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Gable. Let's talk about Johnson & Johnson. Sadly, not my family business. Um, today, out with numbers. The, the numbers are okay. The stock's actually trading near session lows, currently at 166.56. Uh, the company fairly cautious in terms of the guidance that it delivered. Remember, this is a company that is spinning out uh, its consumer healthcare business as well. Uh, the company's CFO is a gentleman that goes by the name of Joseph Walk. Joe, uh, he talked to Alex and I a little bit earlier on. We, we started off talking about that guidance. There being responsibly cautious. Does that mean better things lie ahead? You know, I would say uh, that what we're trying to do is strike the right balance anytime we come out with guidance. And so we're trying to take those risks and those opportunities and say, hey, this is a fair projection of what our business is. In terms of where we're taking the business, though, we couldn't be more excited. Uh, in addition to the financial performance that we had, better than 6% growth across the entire portfolio in 2022, we made a number of significant uh, enhancements, progressions with our pharmaceutical pipeline, our med tech business acquired Abiomed, which was a $16.5 billion acquisition to put us in a high-growth cardiovascular market. And then the consumer business had a very, very solid second half, which positions them well for the separation. So I would say uh, the guidance, while we're using words like prudent and responsibly cautious, uh, it, it's really speaking to it's a balanced uh, assessment mm-hmm. of risks and opportunities that we know today. For the margin pressure that you yeah. see, when do you feel like it bottoms? That's a really good question, Alex. Right now, in terms of our guidance, we experienced a lot more inflation than we were speaking this time last year throughout the course of 2022. Some of that gets hung up on the balance sheet and inventory, and then we'll flow through our P&L throughout 2023. Right now, uh, and maybe this is one of those responsibly cautious elements, we're not assuming any deflationary relief. So in terms of inflation, we think it's here to stay. We'll see some of it through our P&L, at least for the balance of 2023, where we believe costs will remain uh, as high as they are. Joe, are you setting us up for an Outlook upgrade later on this year? Feels like it. I sure hope so, Guy. I mean, that's always our goal, to have aspirations that are above the expectations of the current day. But again, I'll come back to, if you look at just all the macroeconomic uncertainties, you were just speaking uh, with your previous guest about potentially uh, an earnings recession. Uh, We're certainly trying to avoid that. Uh, We feel very good about the 4% plus that we're offering today Mm -hmm. in terms of an EPS outlook as well as a top line outlook amidst a lot of not only macroeconomic uncertainty, but some geopolitical uncertainty as well. Joe, going back to the margins for a moment, where do you see the stickiest cost pressure? What was surprising about the eco data today was that businesses are really starting to pass along those higher prices in the services sector, and that's really hard to reverse. Where are you seeing it and what's your pass through? 
Yeah, so throughout 2022, Alex, we saw it in, a, in some materials, but mostly they were packaging materials, some contract manufacturing, um, and the wages associated with those uh, types of services. Um, I would say those are the, the, the areas that we see. In terms of pass-through, being in pharmaceuticals, being in med tech, the space of healthcare, really doesn't give us the opportunity to pass those along. We have taken strategic price increases in our consumer unit, consistent with what that marketplace has been doing. But we're very limited overall into what we can take in terms of price. Matter of fact, our growth is largely volume. That was Joe Wol- uh, Wolk. He is the CFO of J&J. J&J stock is down by about 1%. It kind of opened a little up and then just continued to roll over uh, as the session went on. Guy and I are usually on the same page, but we were on like two different tracks with that interview. Like I was really focused on margins, and he was really focused on the top line. Um, but what I did find interesting is where the two intersected, in that they do not have the pricing ability. Like They cannot do that. Yep. So it has to be the volume, and it has to be that top line. One thing as well is is that this is a company that that is like so many at the moment trying to to figure out what the portfolio looks like. They're spinning mm-hmm. out the consumer business. Is now the right time to spin out that consumer business? Maybe later would be better. Demerging was that him I, or the analyst? Yeah. Demerging. Well, we talked to an analyst who was talking about GE and mm-hmm. and talking about 3M. The urge to demerge is going to be one of the big themes that runs through. It ran through last year. It's going to continue to run through this year. A lot of these big kind of conglomerate style businesses are are breaking themselves up. Mm -hmm. This just feels like history repeating itself. Totally, because all of a sudden, then fast forward 15, 20 years, you and I will be on this exact radio show talking about how uh, the one company that didn't demerge is now doing well in this potential cycle. Um, Yeah. Conglomerates could be back. That's what I'm saying. It always works out like that. Okay, Microsoft coming up next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. So Microsoft is trading at 242.02, down by about two-tenths of 1%. It is right around, though, that 50 and 100-day moving average. It reports after the bell here in the U.S. Um, It feels like the direction of travel is slowing of its cloud revenue azure. Or Azure, I should say. Azure. Um, Azure. That's what you say. Us Americans say something different. Um, how much it's going to slow, and then what that means for Microsoft's growth, is the real question. It's not 30 or 40% growth, but is 35 okay? Is that enough? I don't know. Let's ask Ed Ludlow. Uh, he is co-anchor for Bloomberg Technology, uh, and he joins us now from San Francisco. I don't know. I know a lot of companies that would kill for 35% growth here. Yeah, I mean, you say Azure, I say Azure, it doesn't really matter because that's what the focus is, right? How does a business like that hold up in this environment? The forecast is for the basket of internet technology or information technology stocks on the S&P 500 to see earnings drop around 9% from the same period a year ago in the last three months of 22. And that's the biggest drop since 2016. And Microsoft's forecast is kind of in line with that EPS, adjusted EPS to drop 7.5%. When we were on the show earlier, guys, we had that beautiful chart which showed 22 consecutive quarters of top line growth above 10%, which is nothing to sniff at, right? That's pretty astonishing. And now the forecast is for 2%. And so Microsoft's kind of the victim in the sense that it goes first of all the mega caps. And no matter how you slice it or dice it, um, things are changing for this company, which has had really, really attractive margins for a long time um, and has weathered the storm. And I think we saw its first sell rating very recently, right, from Guggenheim, who basically said, sorry, but this is not immune to what we're seeing in the global economy. If Microsoft has a good night, how will that change the narrative around tech? If Microsoft has a good night, 
uh, it probably does not change the narrative around tech. Okay. I mean, you know, investors have seem to have short memories based on recent re- market reaction to bad or good news. But do you guys remember us kind of beginning the year of 2022 and having this exact same conversation? What happened in February was Meta really changed that that tone. We saw a lot of companies beat and companies that beat on bottom top and line were rewarded by investors. Mm-hmm. Uh, Meta changed it overnight, remember, because they just dropped off a cliff. A lot of that exacerbated by the war of Ukraine and the softness in the ad market in Europe. Um, so, you know, one report an earnings season does not make, I think, is what the street's saying. So that's the Azure part. What about the consumer part? Like, we know the PCs, for example, are going to be weak, but I guess the question is just how weak is that going to be and what's priced in terms of that? Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, broadly the consumer electronics market's been poor. A big part of Microsoft's business is Xbox on the hardware side. And then, you know, the end market for PCs clearly has a knock on effect for them, both from a software perspective and, you know, uh, operating system perspective. It, it, it varies quarter to quarter. You know, last season, the weakness in video games or consoles was much more pronounced, but that, a lot of that was also related to supply chain, right? There still was a shortage of parts, which was affecting their ability to get those into the hands of consumers. And therefore, it was like a kind of money left on the table situation. In terms of what we're going to learn over the next few days, how much clarity can tech give given the the operating environment that it has right now. There seems to be just so much uncertainty around spend, so much uncertainty around the macro environment, so much uncertainty around kind of costs and things like that. I don't think I I can remember a period in the last 10 years where I've seen this much uncertainty around tech. So I'm wondering how good do you think guidance is going to be? Uh, Well, I think guidance is probably going to be quite thin, um, you know, Apple is an interesting example of that because towards the end of 2022, remember for the stock, December was the worst month going back to May of 19. But the, the, the streets started to seriously revise the overall handset shipments that Apple would make. And there were different reasons for that. One was supply constraints. In other words, Apple couldn't build enough of the things that consumers wanted, higher end iPhone 14 Pro models. But there was no demand for the lower end, which made up for most of the revision. And Tim Cook always has this line on each quarter's earn, uh, earn, quarterly earnings call that he's not an economist. You know, he never kind of projects where we end the year. They never give the same kind of granularity that you get, say, from the semiconductor industry, which will tend to say, oh, well, there's softness in the first half of this year. Things might start to improve in the second half from a demand perspective. You never get that from an Alphabet uh, and Ruth Porat or from a Tim mm-hmm. Cook. So it's hard to kind of make that full year economic assessment based on mega cap tech. Get about virtual reality for a second. Microsoft oh, is. Oh, please. It, Microsoft is definitely being like, no thanks. We're pulling back our spending here. That's not an area where we're going to keep investing in a big, big way. Isn't that terrible for Meta? It, well, it signals a worrying sign for Meta. You know, that the part of the story around Meta in full year 22 was investors lost patience in the commitment to the transition to the metaverse. You know, that on the one hand, the. the uh, Reality Labs, which is the unit around virtual augmented reality, from a sales perspective, started the year really brightly, having massive growth. Then it fell off a cliff. But the the street didn't care about how many headsets it sold. The point was that it was losing $3 billion a quarter. Now what you see is Microsoft saying, actually, we're cutting back here too. In the near term, this is not an area we can continue to invest. 
now contrast that with Mark Gurman's reporting, right? Apple, you know, is, is basically committed to this $3,000 virtual augmented reality headset this year. Can you imagine launching a $3,000 Apple product in this environment? You know, that would be quite a bullish uh, play when it comes to the market, a market the meta already dominates and where investors have been sort of screaming at them, please stop hemorrhaging money. If you were to pick one stock that you're watching out for this earnings season, which one would it be? Which one do you think it is for me, guys? Come on, you you two know Tesla. me better than anyone. Of course, okay. it's Tesla, <laughs> because you know, like Tesla was the story of 2022 about being able to circumvent supply chain disruption. What did we hear when their deliveries missed estimates most recently? What we heard was that there were still a number of vehicles in transit once again at the end of the quarter, and how frustrated they were that they weren't able to get those cars into the hands of customers. You know, I think. They, they have the lever of pricing. They have the lever of uh, being able to offer incentives in North America. They might surprise, but there was a lot of skepticism from analysts in recent quarters that actually this 50% annual average growth rate is attainable for years to come. That's the big question for them. So Microsoft is going to be exciting tonight, but Tesla's the main event for Ed Ludlow. Ed, as ever, thank you very much indeed. Uh, looking forward to the show a little bit later on. Uh, Bloomberg's Ed Ludlow. So we got ASML also out overnight. You've got Microsoft, lots to tech, lots of tech to take to you into, into Wednesday tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. <laughs>